This sermon was recorded at Highway San Jose in San Jose, California. If you'd like to find out more about Highway Community, you can head to www.highway.org. Well, thanks for coming to Highway tonight. It's, uh, it's good to see you guys. And um, if you've been with us recently, you know we're in a series in the book of Galatians. And uh, we've called it Set Free to Live Free. We've examined the book and looked at Paul's rather fiery arguments about the redrawing of the universe that's happened now that Christ has come and how there's a freedom found in the embrace of Christ, hence set free to live free. Uh, So I'd like to begin tonight by reading a poem. And uh, as the creative arts director here at Highway, this is part of my job. I I have to use poetry. It's good for us, right? So let me read this as we start. Uh, This is a poem by 20th century Hebrew poet Yehuda Amichai called My Father. It goes like this. The memory of my father is wrapped in white paper like slices of bread for the workday. Like a magician pulling out rabbits and towers from his hat, he pulled out from his little body love. The rivers of his hands poured into his good deeds. It's a nice image, right? Paul, at long last tonight in this section, finally introduces the concept of love into his argument. I love this poem because it offers such a gentle image of a person of love, a service kind of based love that just pours out of a person, just flows out of them. And it's a, suit- it's a suitable image, I think, for tonight and what we're going to look at in chapter 5 and see how we ought to live and how Paul thinks we ought to live. So certain commentators describe chapter 5 as kind of this pivot point in Galatians. And and by that, they mean that up until this point, Paul's tried to answer the question in Galatians of who are the true people of God. So if that's the question in the beginning of the book, uh, the answer is, well, everyone. Or rather, everyone who believes and places their faith in Christ. So the opening in the tent of Christianity is big enough for all to pass through. So if that's the question, the first half of the book, the question in chapter five and beyond could be how do the people of God act and how do they govern themselves? Or if we're all one in Christ, then what are the identifying markers of the people of God? So in the 70s, there was a movie called Westworld. Does anybody remember this movie? It's a very, (laughs) Bryce, of course. It's a very strange movie uh, by Michael Crichton, who gave us Jurassic Park and things like that. But it was a movie about an adult theme park, an Old West theme park, where you could go and basically have, you know, Old West battles with robots, you know. Well, the series is being remade as, as, well, the movie's being remade as a series on HBO this fall. A friend of mine's uh, involved in it, and he sent me some footage uh, that was really intriguing. And there was a line in there, one of the human characters asks one of the robots, you know, are you real? And the robot says, if you can't tell the difference, does it matter? You know, very existential. This is going to be a very cool series, I think, if you're into that kind of thing, which I am, and so is Bryce. But Paul will begin to reveal in this section how to tell the difference between a child of God or a child of promise, as we saw last week, and everybody else. We talked about this last week. What, is, what, what do we look like compared to the rest of the world in a good way? Okay. And that's a process that Paul will be interested in throughout the rest of Galatians from this point on. And finally, here in chapter 5, love takes center stage. So that will be what we work toward tonight. That the love of Christ and the love for each other that we have 
is the compelling force behind our faith, and it's the engine that drives us, really, and, and helps us to understand God better and understand Christ better. And we, we turn into these people like the image in the poem of Amichai's father. But of course, before we get there, Paul has a few more things to say about the law and circumcision and some of his familiar targets. So let's check out the text. This is 5.1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. So Paul here presents his usual beef with the Galatian audience, and he's done this uh, throughout the book. He's preaching against the idea of circumcision and identification with Jewish law and culture as being one and the same with following Christ. Paul has said all along, that's rubbish. And he does the same here in the beginning of chapter 5. He goes through varying degrees of intensity with this argument. And in this section, he's basically saying circumcision is irrelevant, which to our ears, you know, makes perfect sense. But to his Jewish audience, this would have been completely shocking. And we saw this uh, when he talked about the Abraham story, and he, and he kind of infused that with new ideas. It's interesting in our era, in their uh, moment in history, it would have been completely shocking and revolutionary. But he says, you know, he looks at this practice that's been there for centuries that was actually God-ordained, and he says, now it doesn't have any value. Again, he's redrawing the lines for what identifies people as children of God. Circumcision is a big theme in Galatians, and trust me, I've looked around for a suitable modern analogy to circumcision, and there really isn't one. I'm sure that's not surprising. But, and be careful if you Google modern analogy for circumcision for what it's worth. But, but let's zoom in on this. This is verse 5. For through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. So love is the key here. But before we get to that, uh, let's look at something here that I think is really kind of cool. In verse 5, he says, For through the Spirit, we eagerly await the faith. We eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. Now, let's remember Paul's Galatian audience here. This was a group of people who were being led to believe that Jewishness and the practice of the law and the practice of Torah uh, was the only way to be a suitable follower of Christ. And that meant, that meant being circumcised, that meant purity laws, that meant food laws and everything that had been presented in the Old Testament. And so there was a heavy emphasis on the doing of things, right? On your own actions, your own behavior, your own initiative toward righteousness. But here, Paul's saying, through the Spirit, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. There's a radical shift of action here. We go from a people that are striving, working, offering sacrifices, 
living according to the law, living again according to the Old Testament. And Paul is saying, no, the way we pursue righteousness is actually we wait for the Spirit, and it's the Spirit moving through us who actually does the work, refines us, and brings righteousness. This is part of the theme here throughout the book. It's not about doing, it's about believing. It's not about striving, it's about faith. And it's not about acting, it's about waiting. So these are kind of hard words, both for the Galatians and for us, right, here in Silicon Valley. Waiting, like, we don't like to wait. Waiting for what, you know? No, we like to do, do, do. Do, 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 do da, da, da. We like action, okay? We like entrepreneurialism. We like to take charge. We like to get stuff done. Even when we're, we're relaxing, we like to do stuff. Let's take a picture of this. Let's post this. Let's, I'm doing this. I'm doing things. Like, check me out. You know, we like to be active. We don't like to wait. Well, we serve a God who is not really impressed by that, unfortunately. We're impressed by that, but, but God isn't. Paul presents a quiet, contemplative, servant, Christ-centered consciousness, and he suggests that it's a very different way to live. It's not about doing, again. It's about believing. It's not about striving. It's about faith. And it's not about acting. It's about waiting. And that makes us a little uncomfortable, right? It makes me a little uncomfortable because we like to do, we like to act, we like to do things. But let's, let's look back at the first verse in this section. Verse one, it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. You know, this, this has been one of my favorite verses actually. And as I thought about it this week, I thought, I love the sound of that, but I'm, I, I'm not sure that I really know what that, what that means, right? There's a cyclical logic there that's, that's kind of strange. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free for freedom, you know, and it's, and it's kind of curious. You know, in Western thinking, we like a neat logical flow, like, right? We like A, if A, then B. If there's a cause, this is the effect, you know? This is Silicon Valley, after all, we like ones and zeros, we like binary, we like on or off, open or closed, you know. So this is an interesting verse. If Christ has set me free, then what am I supposed to do with that freedom? Well, Paul's going to get to that, but here he's very careful to just say you, you are free, and that really is the definition of freedom. And that may be a more accurate translation of this verse, as it turns out. Something like freedom means Christ has set you free. Christ has done the work of emancipation, not you, not me. 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon comments on this verse by saying, God, grant us the grace to keep to grace. He uses a similar circular construction there. So this is a sharp contrast to the law, right, where, you know, where the Torah said that, you know, God's righteousness is out there and in and, you know, we have to claim it by doing earthly things down here. Now we have the Spirit who works through us and uncovers the righteousness that we seek. So the lesson there, I think, is don't turn your spiritual life into another action item, right? Let the Spirit do the work. It's not about what you bring to the table. It's not about what I bring to the table, thank goodness. This should be a good encouragement to us, right? But we spend 
you know, large portions of our lives working and working and working, doing, 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 and we, and it, it's tempting to turn our spiritual life into another action item. But Paul's saying Christ is at work through the Spirit in you. So relax, you know. And by the way, relaxing doesn't mean idleness, and he'll get to that. Uh, he, he gets to that in a lot of his writings, and he'll get to that here in Galatians as well. So let's continue. Verse 7. You are running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion, whoever that may be, will have to pay the penalty. Brothers and sisters, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. By the way, the metal band Emasculate Yourself is playing tonight in San Jose. Tickets are still available, I think. A lot more jokes we can make there, but let's, let's move on. So in the beginning of this section, Paul calls on a track and field metaphor, which is, which is one of his favorites. And he says, who cut in on you? Um, if you're old enough to remember the 1984 Olympic Games in Los Angeles, one of the most, and remember the, remember the 84 games? We were alive, we were alive, right? Uh, one of the high points, or low points, if you will, of, of the 84 games came during the, the final moments of the women's 3,000 meter race. Zola Budd, who ran barefooted, and Mary Decker were side by side. I think we have a picture of them here. There they are. They're side by side in a crowded space. Race is almost over, and they collide. Mary Decker, the American, the world champion, stumbled and fell over, and her race for the gold medal was over. And there's the, the agony of defeat there. So Zola Budd was initially disqualified for obstruction, for cutting in and causing Mary Decker to fall. But later, after reviewing the race, she was found not to be at fault and she was exonerated. I remember watching this as a kid, and it was very traumatic, you know. And then a few years later, we had the, we had the Nancy Kerrigan thing, the, the figure skating debacle, and I just thought, man, I don't want to be a professional athlete anymore. <laughs> it's too dangerous, you know. I want to be a musician or something more, more gentle, you know. But this is the image that Paul is using here, the image of, of a runner cutting in on another, basically spiritual, unsportsmanlike conduct, if you will. In Galatia, it's the Judaizers, it's the circumcision gang who are cutting in on those seeking to follow Christ. And it's, but that's a question we should ask ourselves as well today. Who cut in on you? Who or what distracts you from who you truly are in Christ. To be honest, for me, personally, it's not, it's not an external force or, or a person or something, it's, it's me. You know, it's my own thoughts, my own perceptions, my own self-perceptions of the world and of God and of people and the way things are. That's what, that's what twists me up, you know. Maybe you're the same or maybe it's, it's some external force, your career or something in in your family or just life here in Silicon Valley that, that trips you up. And we have those experiences in our lives that seem to color everything, you know, color how we view our relationship with God even. But Paul is saying God is in control and he's saying identify the source of the unsportsmanlike spiritual conduct and root it out. 
which isn't easy, but should be done, right? So finally, if we're free, now what? What do we do with that freedom? Verse 13. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So freedom is a big word in America for obvious reasons, right? And this is an election year, so we'll hear that word a lot as we go toward November. Robert Bilal, one of the most prominent sociologists in the modern era, wrote this. Freedom is perhaps the most resonant, deeply held American value. In some ways, it defines the good in both personal and political life. Yet freedom turns out to mean being left alone by others, not having other people's values, ideas, or styles of life forced upon one, and being free of arbitrary authority in work, family, and political life. What it is that one might do with that freedom is much more difficult for Americans to define. I think there's a lot of insight there. You know, we have the Declaration of Independence, right, which lays out for us kind of the baseline parameters of what we're about as a country, which is fantastic. It allows us to be here tonight and do this together. But what we do with that freedom is left up to the individual. We can use the freedom to help others. We can use the freedom to serve ourselves. We can use the freedom to be selfish. We can use our freedom to get a tattoo on our arm that reads, regret no hing. You know. But this, in a way, that's the beauty of a free society, right? Let's just look at that again. Come on. Yeah, that's great. But that's the beauty of freedom, right? It's, it is up to us, and Paul has ideas of what we do with it. Verse 15, he says, if you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. That sounds a little bit like kind of our fast-paced life here in the Bay Area, right? How often do we use our freedom to just kind of step on each other as we blast our way toward the next goal, you know? Or, or as Bala says, we enjoy our freedom, you know, and we enjoy the unspoken American rule, which guarantees that we have the freedom to do whatever we want unless it impedes on someone else's freedom, you know? Well, Galatians provides an alternate view. Again, verse 13, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh, rather serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. So a few weeks ago I confessed that I was mean to a Amazon customer service employee, and I know I'm the only one, and, uh, but you know, I had a shot a couple weeks ago at redemption. So this time it was with AT&T. I had a problem with my bill. They were charging me all this <laughs> extra money. And it was similar to the other story. Emails, uh, you know, chat rooms, phone calls, and it was like on and on and on and on and on. And finally I got into a chat room with the, per the person that could help me, you know. And I actually had a conscious thought, you know, as I started this process, I, th I thought, okay, don't be a jerk, 
take a deep breath, like don't, don't blow this, you're gonna, or you're gonna have to get up in front of Highway San Jose in a couple weeks and, <laughs> and, and admit it that you did it again, you know. And so I tried to be calm, and then we got to the end, she, she theoretically worked out the problem and said, is there anything else, Mr. Marks? No, thank you. And then she typed this into the chat room, thank you for being so kind and so patient, it made my day. And I was like, wow. <laughs> It, it works, you know. <laughs> Love, after all, is the highest order, right? Paul is quoting Christ here when Christ was asked what the greatest commandment was. And he responds by saying, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. The answer then to the question of how do the people of God act and what are the identifying markers of the people of God is that they are people who serve and love. And Paul is preaching to an audience divided in Galatia, and we're a world divided today. If we use our freedom to humbly serve others, Paul promises, and Christ promises, by the way, a new reality. That's easier said than done, obviously. When I, you know, when I was chatting with the AT&T person, I didn't necessarily feel love for the person when we logged on, you know, but it was like it took a different posture and it took a humility as I went through that process, you know, and it, there was an exchange there that was really cool. Steve Joe and I were talking this week and I think he had a unique perspective on this and that's, you know, if we're to use our freedom in Christ uh, to serve others and to love, uh, start with looking at the ways in which you specifically are free, and that might dictate how you serve others. For instance, you may have financial freedom, right? And you can use that freedom to help others and to love others in that specific way. Or you may have more freedom with your time, with your schedule, and that may be the way that you serve and love others. The point is, as Paul warns, it's that if we don't do that, if we adopt the selfish attitude and we and we get rid of the life of love, it will lead to destruction. As we close uh, and the band comes up again, we're going to celebrate communion. But before we do that, let me read that, that poem again by Ami Chai, my father, because it's such a great image of, of, I think, the people that we're supposed to be. The memory of my father is wrapped in white paper like slices of bread for the workday, like a magician Pulling out rabbits and towers from his hat, he pulled out from his little body love. The rivers of his hands poured into his good deeds. May we be people like that, vessels that love just pours out of. Of course, the ultimate example of, of how to live like that and be like that is Christ. And we'll celebrate that love and that sacrifice tonight as we take communion together. For Christ took his love and his service for us all the way to the cross, and his desire to serve us went all the way to his death. Communion is an ancient practice of the church, and uh, it's something that Christ began for us shortly before he died. And we continue that tradition tonight, and anyone is welcome to come to the table and uh, drink the wine and eat the bread and remember Christ's death on the cross and what he's done for us. Nick's going to sing a song, uh, and the band's going to come up and sing a song called Your Love is Strong. And as we take some time 
to reflect tonight. Um, try to visualize Christ's love for you. You know, picture him in the upper room celebrating Passover with his friends. You know, he loved his friends. A few, a few passages before the communion passage, he washes their feet and, and it says, you know, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. There really was love just pouring out of him, you know, and that should be obvious to us and that's what we celebrate tonight and that's what we, what we remember tonight. But ask him to reveal the freedom that you have and how you might use that freedom to serve other people and to be that vessel that love pours out of, just like he did. As we consider that tonight and how blessed we are to remember him and, and to take communion together, let me read this old prayer as we come to the table. This is an old Anglican prayer. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we do not presume to come to your table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in thy manifold and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table, but thou art the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. Grant us, therefore, gracious Lord, so to eat the flesh of thy dear Son, Jesus Christ, and to drink his blood, that our sinful bodies may be made clean by his body, and our souls washed through his most precious blood, and that we may evermore dwell in him, and he in us. In Jesus' name, amen.